Remember these news headlines from earlier this year? Straight to our top focus from the national capital. Delhi's Nizamuddin area has emerged as the major hotbed for coronavirus outbreak. Parts of the area have been sealed after a spurt in positive cases among the followers of Tablighi Jamaat, the religious body that had... And here's one of India's top journalists, as you might know. I shall share with you today that 1,445 of those infected today are directly because of the Tablighi Jamaat Markas. That 97% people of Assam hear me tonight. People of Assam, 97% of all cases in Assam are because of the Tablighi Jamaat Markas. People of Uttar Pradesh, hear me, 53% of all cases in your state are because of the Tablighi Jamaat Markas. So they who threaten us, they should apologize. And we have every These news right reports are them. troubling. The event could be termed a super spreader, but it's the spin that some news media put on it that kind of strengthened existing borders between people. If you listen to episode one, Pandemics and Borders, you might have noticed an eerie repeat of history from colonial times. That's when Hindu and Muslim pilgrims were blamed for carrying disease into Europe. We'll be discussing here today the branch of science that underpins such headlines, epidemiology, which has a long history with state, corporations, and with modern-day surveillance. Epidemiologists are scientists. Their job is to capture, analyze, and find patterns in data. And they're the ones who first identified the Delhi cluster and labeled it a superspreader. And very closely linked to epidemiology, in fact, its very soul, I'd say, is surveillance, the hoovering up of raw data about us. And these days, it's not only governments that track us, it's also tech companies through so-called public-private partnerships. We'll be speaking to Martin French, a sociologist and surveillance expert at the University of Concordia in Montreal, Canada. We're already sort of seeing the normalization of a lot of kinds of surveillance that prior to COVID-19 would have been unthinkable. You know, this idea that um, a person uh, is a quote-unquote super spreader, I suppose in a very specialized setting where epidemiologists are, you know, trying to work rapidly to identify cases and to interrupt uh, what they call the chain of infection. This concept probably has some utility, but when it gets kind of taken up by mass media to ostracize and stigmatize people, I think that's very worrisome. This is chat room number six on Scrolls and Leaves. I'm Mary Rhodes. And I'm Guy Three. So for our listeners, I thought it'd be useful to just go over some basics first. Epidemiology is the study of disease in a population, and epidemiologists use data to figure out things like like how common a disease is in your community. And once they know that, they can deploy resources. So for example, they might look at how many people are smoking in a community, and then they might design anti-smoking campaigns to prevent disease. A lot of times epidemiologists work inside public health organizations. So Martin, can you tell us how public health and epidemiology are linked to surveillance? Sure thing. So thanks again for having me on, on the podcast. Public health organizations hire epidemiologists to conduct epidemiology. And this brings me to the concept of surveillance because one of the key tools of epidemiology in a public health context is surveillance. Now, there are different definitions of surveillance in public health, but you know, one widely used description is that surveillance is the systematic and um, ongoing collection and collation 
um, and analysis of data for public health purposes, and then the dissemination of uh, this data to guide response and to guide action. Ah, so that's how they link up. But what about the other side, like the differences between surveillance and epidemiology? So I think that uh, sometimes we might think of surveillance and epidemiology as synonymous terms, but um, often public health practitioners will sort of draw a distinction between epidemiology and surveillance, and they'll say that, you know, epidemiology is really kind of like on the research side of things, uh, whereas surveillance is something that uh, is much more, it doesn't have, uh, you know, research necessarily as a goal, it just has kind of um, understanding a condition in a population as a goal. So it's, you know, whereas a research study might be time-delimited, surveillance tends to be, you know, ongoing, systematic, and so on. Um, Often with research studies, there's a lot more oversight. Uh, You know, speaking as an academic, when I want to conduct research with human participants, I have to kind of go through an ethics review process. And surveillance tends to be um, exempted from that. <laughs> I think that's a kind of an you know an interesting distinction. Sometimes, um, under the rubric of surveillance, uh, the process maybe is subject to less regulatory control, so it can move and adapt more quickly. But that has also ethical implications as well, right? Uh, there may be uh, things that people are doing under the name of surveillance that we wouldn't necessarily view as ethical. Um, And then there's the whole matter of private sector uh, companies doing surveillance, which, you know, even if they're doing research, they're not kind of subject to the same sort of scrutiny that, um, let's say, something like academic research would be subject to. So let's get into private sector surveillance during the pandemic. Google and Apple have released their own contact tracing apps. In India, we have the Setu, which uh, the government developed together with the private sector. So can you just give us an overview briefly of how these apps work? So I'll try to do that. I'm, I'm not a computer scientist, so um, you know I, I have relied on computer scientists to explain this to me. But it's, it's difficult, first of all, to, to understand, and it's not transparent. So I think it's, it's a hard question to answer. We can think about contact tracing apps as having two separate components. So there's a client app. So that's the application on your phone, basically. Um, the application is going to basically track when your mobile device comes into contact with the Bluetooth signals of other mobile devices. So that's basically how it works. It's a proximity sensor. And so the Bluetooth signals are, depending on the app, probably encrypted and stored locally on your device. Um, But what uh, these computer scientists, Leaf and Farrell, observed is that basically, if you're going to use the app, you have to have it switched on and you have to have Google Play services switched on, right? And so if you if you have that service switched on, one of the things that Google Play services is doing is it's connecting to Google servers roughly every 20 minutes. And so Leith and Farrell noted that these connections necessarily disclose the handset IP uh, to Google and also a proxy for people's location. And they also contain uh, persistent identifiers uh, that allow requests from the same device to be linked together. So um, taking all of these data points together, so it might not be sending kind of like people's like individual Bluetooth signals, but it's gathering a lot of other types of data that when put together um, can allow a fine-grained tracking 
of this device over time. So these companies are also responding to critiques and questions over um, privacy concerns. So it's a moving target as well, uh, which which is good that they're responding to criticisms, but also difficult in the sense that it makes it even more challenging to figure out what's going on. So in your email to me, you mentioned the danger of all this. For example, if you have a contact tracing app installed on your Android phone and say you're attending an anti-government protest and you have your phone in your pocket, Google could find out your location. And it's very likely, and in fact it's allowed under law in India, for law enforcement to access this data. So we can see how contact tracing can intersect with other forms of surveillance that can lead to greater oppression. So it sounds like data is definitely being collected. I saw your recent commentary on this, and we're going to link that on our website for our listeners. Um, You said that the contract tracing apps may be a way for these corporates to further their economic interests. And you also mentioned the work of a Harvard professor. Her name is Shoshana Zuboff. I think that's how you pronounce it. And her concept of surveillance capitalism. Could you tell us what that is and how contract tracing fits in with that? Zuboff argues that as users of this service, we're part of the company's value proposition. So some people have said uh, that as uh, users of, say, a Google service um, or a Facebook service, uh, we become kind of commodified. We, we become packaged and sold uh, to companies for their capacity to create intelligence about, about us and our behaviors and so on. And Zuboff actually you know, pushes, it, pushes the argument a bit further even. She says, you know, we don't even rise to the level of commodities. It's a mistake to think that we are turned in as users. We're turned into commodities. In fact, we're raw material, <laughs> she says. You know, we, we become the raw material that uh, these companies use to create um, their information commodities that they then um, can sell on to other parties, which, which relate to um, basically intelligence about, about human behavior, right? What um, people will do um, now and in the future. And this is really, really valuable information. And obviously, if you look at the wealth of these companies, these information companies, um, it's enormous, right? So how can companies like Google benefit from a contact tracing app? Think about um, an older owner of a smartphone, for example. Um, Maybe that user is not going onto the smartphone every day to check their Facebook account. Maybe they are, but, you know, maybe not, right? They might not be as active on social media, Twitter, and so on. But now we have this contact tracing app. They're in an at-risk group, and they're being encouraged to use. And so in one sense... um, the application might be driving users to their smartphone devices with more frequency and in new ways than they would otherwise have used the device. So it's creating what scholars uh, like Natasha Schul, for example, uh, the anthropologist um, at uh, New York University has called this, this kind of engagement with devices, time on device. Think about uh, how Facebook evaluates its its worth when they make reports to their investors, right? They're, they talk about DAUs, daily active users. So in one sense, the move to this app might have just created a lot more daily active users, right, for these for these technologies. At the level of the application, they cement, I think, in some significant ways, uh, to the extent that people are using it, uh, they, they just make this technology even more embedded in people's everyday lives. 
So it sounds like it might result in behavior change, you know, hook people onto the phones and maybe they'll use other apps. So the contact tracing app in this case is sort of like the gateway drug. Yeah, I think that from my perspective, that is one of the ways that they can cement their power. And maybe the best uh, way to understand this here is with the idea of a platform. So in North America, for example, um, the company Uber (laughs) really disrupted local taxi industries. I think that one of the ways in which um, these companies, just by getting more and more users uh, are are in increasing their power is by sort of that amplifier effect that is associated with the growth of networks. So Uber might not be such a powerful force if it was kind of limited to one city, but because it's across cities and across countries, it can really kind of come in and, and disrupt local industries. Airbnb, same thing. If it was just a kind of like an, or, an organization in a city renting out rooms, it wouldn't be really a threat to the hotel industry, right? Um, this um, way of doing surveillance mediated through um, the companies that build the applications, um, the companies that control the handheld devices, so the platforms, and the companies that um, provide uh, the the network infrastructure, so um, telecommunications companies, all of those organizations, their their power, I think, is is cemented, uh, further cemented, amplified potentially by um, these types of directions that uh, governments have been taking in the pandemic response. Think about um, all of the stuff that we're doing virtually now and remotely, right? So these, I think, these companies have. Are kind of coming into a power that maybe they haven't had ever before. They're already quite powerful, but now they're even more essential to people's everyday lives. And you argue in your article that all of this sort of fits into that concept of disaster capitalism that Naomi Klein proposed. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think so. And this is really um, an idea that has been developed by um, the amazing thinker and writer um, and journalist Naomi Klein. Her um, book, The Shock Doctrine, really talked about the way that uh, crises are leveraged by powerful uh, corporate interests to remake social systems and then to amplify their power. It's a good frame of reference for making sense of contact tracing in the contemporary moment. And so when Klein defines disaster capitalism, she she talks about it as an orchestrated raid on the public sphere in the wake of catastrophic events. And she was talking about the destruction of um, Iraq in the Gulf War and the capitalist appropriation of the recovery. And there are lots of other examples uh, that she has talked about in her own work. I'm thinking about uh, Hurricane Katrina, for example, and uh, the way that um, the city of New Orleans was destroyed by the hurricane, and then the way that private sector uh, solutions were presented as ways to rebuild. So, yeah. And also the Indian Ocean tsunami, um, I think, uh, and how corporations sort of went in after the catastrophe and took over the coastline. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And so these are these are um, moments of crises and disaster where Klein says uh, publics are scrambling, right? So we're, we're in shock and we're uh, very uh, receptive to 
whatever solution is going to allow us to get past the crisis. Um, and so she wants to draw our attention to the way that powerful corporate actors often not not just take advantage of those situations, but actually create the conditions, right, for those situations to become crises. So here the argument is if, if there was a more equitable distribution of wealth, if um, we had uh, corporate taxes at um, uh, the level that they used to be, our public sector capacities might not be so fragile right now. So are you seeing this disaster capitalism at play during this pandemic? Well, I think so. I think with the example that we've been sort of talking about with the corporate contact tracing apps, yes, I think this this fits very well with that description. Um, you know, we, we have uh, public health systems that... Um, uh, had capacities eroded. Governments, for whatever reason, can't sort of see or don't want to see the role that they play in making communities resilient. In the wake of that kind of erosion, which makes those systems fragile, when we have a crisis, they're not there to respond. Uh, so who is the, who is left to respond? It's the the um, organizations that have the the capital and the capacity to be able to respond. So I think it'd be good to go over some public health issues in India. Um, the investments have been pretty low for decades. I think that since 2009, it's been about 2% of GDP. And last year, it was even less. It was 1% of GDP. And if you want to compare that, in Canada and the U.S., it's been about 10% of GDP. So you can kind of imagine the pretty sad conditions that have been already laid out before the pandemic in India. So let's talk about the impacts of surveillance. I saw in your article that you're worried about an increase in bias. So Canada and the United States share uh, a border, of course, and there's this idea that you know goods and people can move fairly freely across this border. But um, for a number of years, up until the Obama administration changed the legislation, it was pretty difficult uh, for someone, for example, uh, living with an HIV diagnosis to freely come and go. Um, when we think about people who were already living with a diagnosis that has been a very stigmatized diagnosis historically. So uh, I think these these kinds of examples are worth keeping in mind as well. So people who have been diagnosed with um, infectious conditions already have kind of like limited mobility. What are some of the other problematic results of surveillance or, more broadly speaking, epidemiology? For example, when Indians use Arogya Sethu, I feel like we also use it to watch others as much as to protect ourselves. Um, maybe this is most evident in the context of people's everyday lives when we are thinking about what has been, you know, badly called uh, social distancing to, you know, quote unquote, flatten the curve. This idea that we've, we've all sort of... Um, taken on the work of distancing from other people in order to flatten the curve is maybe an example of the performance of interpersonal borders. So we've got nation-state borders, of course, uh, we've got borders around communities, and we've got borders around ourselves, interpersonal borders. I think that um, 
epidemiologically, we can see that this this regime of physical distancing has worked. You know, in terms of uh, slowing the number of cases of uh, COVID nineteen disease in various communities. So that is positive. But socially, uh, it has had perhaps a number of unintended consequences. For instance, I think it has thickened already existing borders between people and communities. We've had numerous reports in Canada of racist reactions targeted at Chinese Canadians uh, or people who quote-unquote look Asian, right? And these types of interpersonal and um, I would say intercommunal borders are particularly worrying outcome of the narrative of COVID-19 disease that has been told using surveillance data and epidemiological language, right? This idea of the novel coronavirus as the Wuhan virus or the, the Chinese virus, um, you know, mobilized by, by political leaders, for example, in very, very troubling ways. So, you know, there's a sense in which disease surveillance can inter lock with and potentially exacerbate already existing borders that uh, divide our societies. And we want to think very carefully and very critically about this possibility. Even seasoned journalists uh, sometimes you know, fall prey to language that is not necessarily helpful for describing infectious disease. And I'm thinking here really of the concept of super spreader, you know, this idea that um, a person uh, is a quote-unquote super spreader, that they, you know, infect many, many um, other people themselves. This comes from the, the epidemiological practice of contact tracing and of identifying, you know, an individual who others may have uh, contracted uh, an infectious uh, disease from. I suppose in a very specialized setting where epidemiologists are, you know, trying to work rapidly to identify cases and to interrupt uh, what they call the chain of infection. This concept probably has some utility, but when it gets kind of taken up by mass media to, um, you know, ostracize and stigmatize people, I think that's very worrisome. Uh, that's a thing that propagates fear, fear of one another, and a kind of xenophobia, if you like that uh, really undermines uh, the conditions of social solidarity, which in my view are going to be ultimately necessary if we're to have any hope of coming out of the current crisis in a better position than we are now. You were listening to Martin French on Chatroom on Scrolls and Leaves. If you want to learn more about the topics here today, uh, visit our website, scrollsandleaves.com slash chatroom6. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Bye for now.